Hello, and welcome back to the Magical History Tour podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and today we're continuing on our tour of the British colonies, this time taking a look at the institution of slavery. We'll also, in contrast, look at some Enlightenment thinking and how it affected the colonies. Finally, we'll stop and observe the Great Awakening. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. In 1700, there were enslaved Africans in every one of the American colonies, and they made up 11% of the total population. Slavery was most prevalent in the Chesapeake colonies and in the Carolinas. Looking back a little bit at slavery in Europe, Mediterranean Europe had had household slavery for a very long time. War captives would be sold to wealthy families to work as servants or artisans. Captured Slavic people, which is where they actually get the word slave from the word Slav. Muslim people and Africans were also slaves. In North America, these slaves originally came from long-established societies and local communities in Western Africa. In the 16th century, more than 100 different people groups lived along the coast of Western Africa. These communities had sophisticated farming systems. They practiced shifting cultivation, they cleared land by burning, men cleared land, women cultivated it, and sold the surpluses. Some areas will grow into large trading centers, like Timbuktu, and many will grow into kingdoms and states. There were lesser states along the coast, which is where the Portuguese will first bargain for slaves. Household slavery was common in Western Africa, though most slaves were actually treated more as members of family than as possessions. They could marry, children were born free. West Africans might have thought European slavery would be similar. The movement of Africans over the Atlantic was considered the largest forced migration in world history. They are the largest group of people to come to the Americas before the 19th century, at a ratio of six Africans to every one European. Slave ships will bring from 10 to 12 million Africans to the Americas during the 4th century history of the trade. 76% of those from 1701 to 1810. Most will go to Brazil or the West Indies but a good number will go to British North America. Regarding slaves, men outnumbered women two to one, probably because most were needed in the fields. Most slaves were between the ages of 15 and 30, and all ethnic groups from Africa will eventually be represented. All of Western Europe will participate in the slave trade, including the Dutch, the Portuguese, and eventually the English in the 16th century. The slave trade was a collaboration between European or American and African leaders. Slave raiding itself was left to the Africans, most enslaved through warfare. Occasionally, there were major attacks, but more often there were smaller raids where a group of men attacked at nightfall and took everyone within reach, escaping with their captives from the villages. Demand for slaves will increase with the expansion of the plantation system in the Americas. As it did, raids will extend deeper into the African interior. To lower the risk of resistance and rebellion, traders will split up family and ethnic groups. The voyage of the slave ships is known as the Middle Passage. Slaves would be rowed out to a waiting ship, packed into shelves below deck only two and a half by six feet, and chained to each other. One ship that had a maximum capacity of 450 souls routinely carried more than 600. The voyages of the Middle Passage could last anywhere from four weeks to six months, depending on the weather. There was very inadequate sanitation on the ships. The crews were supposed to swab the holds every day, but they rarely did, so slaves were left to wallow in their own waste. Many will sicken and die. An estimated one out of every six Africans will perish on the Middle Passage. Once they reach the Americas, buyers at slave markets will poke, prod, and examine the Africans. Sometimes they would have an auction, 
or they might be sold in a scramble where their prices were set ahead of time. They would be driven into a corral and buyers would rush in to seize their pick. Many were separated from everyone they knew and sent to live on plantations where they were unable to communicate with anyone because they didn't know the language. Now, because they were expensive and had short lifespans, mainly because life expectancy overall in the Chesapeake was relatively low, but theirs was even lower, it was very little economic benefit to have slaves at first. Indentured servants were more often employed. Servants and slaves in Virginia and Maryland will work, eat, and sleep in the same quarters. They often developed relationships. It was considered a society with slaves. That means it's a society where slavery was one form of labor among several. Because of that, the status of black Virginians was very ambiguous. Some were able to hire themselves out during their free time, earning enough money to buy their freedom and their own land even. Because many of the slaves were Christians, this raised doubts as to whether they could be kept as slaves. You also had a sizable mulatto population. So at first, dark skin at that time did not mean automatic slavery and segregation. However, in the last quarter of the century, the Chesapeake will go from being a society with slaves to a slave society, which is where the dominant form of labor is slavery. Why did that happen? Well, number one, you have a decline in the immigration of English servants. There was not as much land. We talked about this with the indentured servitude. So the labor shortage will be filled by slaves. They were more expensive, but they could work longer hours with fewer days off. So by 1700, Africans made up 22% of the population of the Chesapeake. Now, because there was no precedent for enslaving people for life, or even making that status inheritable and inevitable, colonists had to write slavery into law. In 1622, a law was passed that said that children would be, and I quote, bond or free according to the condition of the mother. Five years later, Christian baptism no longer altered servitude. And in 1669, they passed a law that said the death of a slave during punishment would not be considered a felony. In 1705, Virginia will gather these and other laws into a comprehensive slave code that will be a model for other colonies. Now, tobacco accounted for more than a quarter of the value of all colonial exports. Growth of tobacco production was impossible without growth in the labor force, since tobacco demanded close attention and much hard labor. By 1770, more than a quarter of a million slaves were in Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. The numbers were expanding at double the general population. Looking at South Carolina, we already know that it was a slave society from the first. Now, initially, the most valuable part of the early Carolina economy was the Native American slave trade, which we already talked about. Eventually, though, planter preference will turn to African slaves. Rice production was growing, and West Africans, with their experience in agriculture, made better rice workers. Indigo, the blue dye, becomes an important crop as well. Georgia, a state which started out prohibiting slaves, though nobody apparently paid attention to that, will also become an extension of the Carolina Lowcountry slave system. Now, tobacco plantations were often smaller, but rice plantations needed at least 20 workers and usually had 50 to 75 slaves or more. This will lead to large black majorities in the Lower South. By 1770, there were almost 90,000 African Americans in the Lower South. That's 80% of the coastal population of South Carolina and Georgia. Slavery in the North was still an important form of labor in many areas, though the Northern colonies couldn't be characterized as slave societies, but societies with slaves. 
It will grow more significant in the commercial farming regions of southeastern Pennsylvania, central New Jersey, and Long Island. Newport, Rhode Island became a dominant slave port, and that area had large gangs of slaves that were used in cattle and dairy operations. Now, elsewhere in New England, slavery was less common. Slavery was widespread in port cities, and slave ownership was nearly universal among the wealthy. It was ordinary among craftsmen and professionals, and by 1750, slaves and a small free black population will make up 15 to 20 percent of the residents of Boston, New York City, and Philadelphia. So we've seen the beginnings of slavery in the colonies. We've seen where it's prevalent, where it's less prevalent, and we're going to keep an eye on that as we go through the tour. But now we're going to turn our attention a little bit to other parts of the culture. Colonial culture at this time is still very much British culture. Books and magazines came from England. Cloth and luxury items for the wealthy came from England. Wealthy colonials will mirror the manners of the English country gentry. You have a lot of things happening, though, in the 1700s. The first public stagecoach route opened in 1732. Taverns and inns will begin to play a very important role in colonial life. People who were traveling could stay safely there. And of course, you have a lot of gossip and politics and news that will be spread in taverns. Taverns are going to serve as a forum for conversation and social interaction. Now, as more people read and mail becomes more reliable, more newspapers started popping up in the 18th century. Prior to 1745, there were only 22 newspapers throughout the colonies. That's going to burgeon in the later 1700s, so we'll see more ideas and more information beginning to circulate. Many educated people were drawn to the spirit of the Enlightenment. Sometimes it's called the Age of Reason. The spirit of the Enlightenment took shape in the late 1600s in Europe. It was a revolutionary way of looking at the world. It celebrated rational inquiry, scientific research, and individual freedom. Enlightenment thinkers argued that the universe was governed by natural laws that people could understand and apply to their own advantage. For example, John Locke was a philosopher who advanced the idea that the state existed to provide happiness and security to individuals, and those individuals were endowed with the right to life, liberty, and property. That sounds somewhat familiar, right? English writers will emphasize themes of rationality, order, and harmony. It's a big difference from the traditional emphasis on the mysteries of God and the mysteries of nature and the inevitable failure of humans. I mean, think about the Puritans. They were really sort of negative about stuff like that. <laughs> so, so the Enlightenment is a much more positive outlook. And you will see some of the colleges take up some Enlightenment thinking, although they're going to retain some of the old philosophies because all of the colleges at this time are colleges set up to produce ministers. You have several colleges now. You have Harvard, of course, which was set up by the Puritans. The College of William and Mary was founded by Anglicans in 1693. And then Yale was founded in 1701 by the Puritans who felt that Harvard had gotten way too liberal. So the curriculum, like I said, of colleges at this time is designed to train ministers, but it will gradually begin to introduce more Enlightenment ideas. Now, during the 1700s, the word Enlightenment had both religious and scientific meanings. If you look at the King James Bible, Paul will write to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1.18, asking that the eyes of their understanding be enlightened. Now, among the pioneers of scientific enlightenment were English philosophers like Francis Bacon, I mentioned John Locke, and Isaac Newton. These writers 
like Greek humanists before them, will propose that knowledge came from human experience, not necessarily divine inspiration. Locke, as I mentioned, will take it to the political. He argued that government is not a divine institution, but a human one. He said it's the result of social contracts between rulers and subjects, and like all contracts, could be altered at the people's will. Here's a quote from John Locke's second treatise on civil government. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce the people to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people, who are thereby absolved from any further obedience. These are some ideas that are going to take root in America and will lead gradually to a revolution. But I don't want any spoilers yet, so let's move on. Even as Enlightenment thinkers were arguing that human religions and laws were relative and changeable, they were discovering some immutable truths. They were looking at things like the laws of science. They called the laws of science natural law. The father of this new science is Isaac Newton, and Newton is going to formulate basic laws of gravity, light, and color, and he's also going to help develop modern algebra and calculus. Thanks a lot, Isaac Newton. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, Newton's work is going to be translated from Latin, and that new science is going to be spread to the general public. Now, books are becoming more affordable during this time due to technological advances in papermaking and in printing, so you're going to see a surge in new readers. That will cause a second renaissance during the 1700s. And so a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers begin looking back at the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and what they were thinking, and they're trying to say, okay, how can we use the thoughts that these Greeks and Romans had to understand our own time period? So it's during this time you're going to see science briefly taking the focus off of religion and mysteries and the idea that only God knows the universe. And science is taking it off of religion and putting that focus on man. That is called humanism. Humanists believe that individual happiness was a worthwhile human goal. They felt that reason and logic was the best way to attain individual happiness. So that will become very popular. Enlightenment humanism offended a lot of people who were more religious, and they believed that doing God's will, not personal happiness, should be humanity's goal. They don't like the idea of focusing on humanism. Enlightenment science will also challenge religion because it will use scientific laws instead of God's will to explain events of nature. Slavery is going to pose a challenge on a lot of different fronts in the 18th century. Many people are influenced by these Enlightenment ideas of the progression of history. They felt that all societies move through predictable stages of development and that eventually all societies are going to decline, kind of like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So the key, they felt, was to find a prolonged moment of good and protect it. These are people who are very concerned in political, scientific, cultural, and economic ways. They're concerned with progress. They're concerned with innovation. They want to achieve and prolong that high stage of development. They want to achieve and prolong the good times, kind of. The good times. And for many of them, slavery represented savagery and backwardness. They didn't seem to see it as a moral issue yet. Until you get to the revolutionary period and just after that, you have some groups of Quakers as exceptions to this, but for the most part, it's not a moral issue with many of them yet. Their question was whether slavery reflected badly on them, and they felt that slavery suggested that they were barbaric, and they felt it was a regressive economic system. They felt it would inhibit social and economic development. The physical presence of so many slaves, as well as the importance and the idea of slavery, 
all of those realities are different than from what they had expected in England. They were very distinctive in America. European travelers actually came over and commented on precisely these things. Um, it's not just some Americans being oversensitive about slavery. This is, people are remarking on it. It's obvious to everyone that it was crucial to the nature of America. And so the big question becomes, is it crucial in ways that are destructive to Euro-American cultural identity? With regard to religion, Deism becomes fairly popular among some of the enlightened people. And that is the idea that while God created the universe and designed the natural laws, it's the laws that now govern the operation of the universe, not God. They saw God as more of an onlooker. It's sort of like he started things and now he's letting it play out. They don't see him as intervening as, say, the, the Puritans do. They felt that evil didn't come from humanity's sinfulness, it came from ignorance of the laws of nature. So because they felt that way, they also felt that the best way to improve society and human nature was by cultivating reason. Faith in human progress is going to be a really important enlightenment belief. Now religion and church are going to become a bit less important to the 18th century colonial elite than in previous times. In fact, you'll see during this time period that a lot of Puritans will leave the Puritan church and join the Anglican church. Not because they necessarily thought that the Anglican church had better doctrine or anything like that, but more because it was the more socially prestigious church in many areas. And a lot of people will change their memberships for political reasons, not really church reasons. Part of the problem that you'll see with the elite was that most of them were extremely wealthy, they're extremely comfortable, so they're satisfied, they're happy, and they didn't really feel a big need for church. But it's also going to be a little bit of the spirit of the Enlightenment that is going to encourage people to fall away from the church. The Anglican Church in the South had falling memberships, as did the Puritan Church, which I mentioned earlier. Very quickly, you get to a point where only about one in five English colonists actually belong to a church. So in 1662, the Puritans will pass something called the Halfway Covenant. It was a, an agreement that said that the children of members, so church members who had children, grown children, who hadn't experienced conversion could be halfway members. They could join the church as halfway members. So they could be a part, they could do things. They were restricted from taking communion, but it allowed the Puritans to have a better membership roster because you seem to have a lot of people who had not had a conversion experience and weren't able to join the church and participate. You also see a lot of people begin to question the theology of predestination that Puritans believed. Many will turn to the more comfortable idea of something called Arminianism. Arminianism encompasses a lot of things, but for our purposes, we're going to look at the idea that God gives people the freedom to choose salvation by developing their faith and doing good work. And it kind of goes along with the enlightenment idea that people could actively change and shape their destinies. That's a really big part of the enlightenment is that people have control over their destiny, which was a little bit different from before. There was also a change in the view of God. The Puritans tended to see God as a more punishing father, but Arminianism saw God as more loving. So you're going to see beginnings of changes in how how people saw creator, how people saw themselves being able to be in charge of their own destiny. 
The Enlightenment, with its emphasis on science and reason, is going to compete with traditional intellectual and religious values, and that's going to become part of the Great Awakening. There were people who did not like these new views of things at all. The Great Awakening is not triggered by religious persecution, but by a different type of preacher appearing on the scene. The first big challenge comes from a minister, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards went to Yale at the age of 13, and he graduated at the top of his class four years later. Now, at the time, we talked about people being consumed by wealth. You have a lot of very wealthy people. They're focused on that, and they actually had some churches that would have seating charts that would seat the wealthy in the front pews and the less wealthy the further back you go. And so you, you see a lot of the poorer, younger people will refuse to attend church, and they would have their own get-togethers in the evenings. Edward sort of focused on those young people, and he preaches to them, but he preaches in a different way. He preached very emotionally. Typically, ministers were, especially Puritan ministers, were pretty sober, very, let's go through each piece of the text and explain it. They were not excited. You didn't see a lot of emotion, and this is when that is going to change. Edwards focused on these young people. He preached very emotionally to them. You have a religious fervor that will sweep the community and you'll get people beginning to come to church. These emotional preachings led to revivals and will sweep through the colonies. Reverend George Whitfield, who was a colleague of John and Charles Wesley, and he was a person who was kind of really interested in acting and he's got some pretty impressive thespian skills and he appears in the late 1730s and he will go from one end of the colonies to the other and he will draw lots and lots of people. Benjamin Franklin actually wrote in his diary that he went to see Whitfield speak in Philadelphia and that he had quite a booming voice and that Franklin actually performed kind of a scientific experiment and he paced away from his voice trying to calculate how far Whitfield's voice would travel and apparently it would it would travel really far because Whitfield had a pretty resonant voice. And what is compelling is like Jonathan Edwards, his very dramatic heartfelt style of preaching because like I said, preachers before Edwards and Whitfield delivered sermons very soberly. Now the Great Awakening began in the mid-Atlantic colony in the 1730s, but they, it kind of takes a while to get to the South because Southerners will resist evangelicalism, partially because of the occasional testimony against slavery, though it was fairly muted in the South, but also because early evangelicalism had an emphasis on the church over the nuclear family and the extended kin. And Southerners, whether black or white, did not like that message because family was very important to them. They put a great priority on family relationships and family closeness. So you'll see the Great Awakening happening in the South, but it takes a little bit longer. We saw Jonathan Edwards kind of beginning it, kicking it off. The movement is fueled by George Whitfield in 1739 when he tours the colonies and gives really emotionally charged sermons. The Great Awakening will hit its peak in around 1741. And that's actually around the time that Edwards delivers his most famous sermon. As some of you probably have heard of it. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The Great Awakening was was a colonial revival of religion. It was a call for piety. It was a call for pure
security. It was a call to get rid of laxity and decadence. You have a lot of people having conversion experiences, but it does begin to undermine a lot of the established churches because it raises questions. People start saying, why do we do this? Why did we do that? Why do we believe in this? Why do we believe in that? Part of the Enlightenment ideas are asking questions and finding out. And so they're taking those Enlightenment ideas and applying them to some of the religions. So you'll have arguments between, uh, you had a group called the New Lights who didn't like Arminianism. They called for a revival of Calvinism. And you had the Old Lights. They condemned the emotional enthusiasm of the new preachers in the congregations. They thought it was heretical. They didn't believe in a personal relationship with God outside of church. And you'll see that people start disagreeing. And because of that, congregations will split over those issues. So you'll see that the Great Awakening actually led to a lot of new denominations being formed because of splits within congregations. Those revivals will also begin to introduce slaves to Christianity more and more. Now, a lot of the churches in the South, for a short time, actually included members of both races, and both could get up and preach in certain areas. Now, it was very rare, and it was for a short time. Later, they would separate, but it did happen for a little while. The thing that you see about this revivalism is that it empowers ordinary people to question their leaders, as I mentioned before. That's going to be an integral part of the revolution. Now, by the mid-18th century, you have this few colonies in the wilderness, and they've sort of developed into a very large and complex society. And they're distinguished by religious differences, but they're also united by a shared acceptance of racial inequality, the importance of religion in their lives, and a belief in basic principles of law and politics that's going to eventually lead them to an imperial crisis because you have people asking questions now. Both the Enlightenment and the Great Awakening emphasized that individuals should have the freedom to take responsibility for their own lives, for their own salvation. That's going to weaken the authority of the established churches, just like later on the resentment of British colonial regulations is going to weaken the colonist loyalty to the king. So these movements, both the Enlightenment and the Great Awakening, are going to help nurture this American commitment to individual freedom, to resistance, to authority, and that is going to play a key role in the revolution that's coming. In the next episode, we will be talking about the French and Indian War. Looking forward to continuing the tour. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and recommend the Magical History Tour podcast to a friend. See you next time.